I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the great English golf boom. My guest is Michael Morrison, a golf historian who just published a book of that very title, The Great English Golf Boom. You can get a copy of your own by simply emailing him at mike.morrison57 at outlook.com. The book covers a 50-year period between 1864 and 1914, when golf became very popular in England. This was the first time that the game had really caught on anywhere outside of Scotland. And I think it's such an interesting period because the kind of golf that was played in England ended up being the kind of golf that was played many other places. Now, obviously, golf is a Scottish invention, but the way we play the game today owes just as much, I think, to how English people took it up in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So let's just go straight to my interview with Michael Morrison. So briefly, Michael, when you say the great English golf boom, the title of your book, what are you referring to? Well, uh, it it covers the period uh, essentially from when golf got started uh, through until the First World War, 1914. Uh, It was a very slow buildup and perhaps we wouldn't today consider that to be a boom because it was barely detectable for about a quarter of a century. But then in the second quarter of a century from 1890 to 1914, that's when golf really took off in England. Uh, And it it, uh, surpassed the number of clubs, the number of golfers that were playing golf in Scotland very, very quickly into the early 1890s. So very suddenly England became the, the country in the world where most golf was being played. So in basic terms, why is this period important? So say somebody is is thinking, great English golf boom, why should I care about that? It happened a long time ago. What is the importance of this period and this set of events to, to us now? Well, I, I think a starting point is that there's a temptation to believe that what happened in Scotland is what happened in England. And um, the boom that took place in Scotland when golf began to take off in the mid 19th century, was a a dramatic change also. But it was driven by two quite important events that more or less coincided, and that was the invention of the gutta percha golf ball, commonly assumed to be around 1848. And about the same time, the Scottish Railway Network was beginning to to, uh, expand from just a a link between Glasgow and Edinburgh to become a, a genuine network covering the whole country. And in fact, the largest number of railway stations to open in any given year in the 19th century was 1848 in Scotland. So you had a combination of events. And on the back of that, we went from around a dozen golf clubs scattered around the east coast of Scotland to 30, 34, 35 golf clubs in by the end of the 1850s. So this was the golf taking off 
in Scotland, very specifically in Scotland. And I can maybe give you a, a very quick um, illustration of that. 1859, there was a thousand miles of railway track in Scotland. There were 34 clubs. All of them were in close proximity of a railway station. If you then look at England at exactly the same point in time, there was 7,500 miles of railway track in the country. Every town with a population of over 7,500 had a railway station, and there was only two golf clubs in the whole country. Uh, that was Blackheath and uh, Old Manchester. Both were formed prior to the railway age, so there was no response in terms of the two factors that drove golf to become a major feature of Scottish life and, in fact, to become the, the sport of Scotland, and the same thing didn't happen in England. So there was a substantial delay between the two. And coming back to your original question then, was the, the reason why the great boom in England is important because the characteristics of it were, were so different from what happened in Scotland. So focusing on the Scottish golf boom for a second, you mentioned the gutta percha ball. Why was it that the gutta percha ball made the game more popular in Scotland? Well, it boils down by and large to economics. Um, the uh, the feathery ball, which has been the ball in play for, for centuries, uh, leather pouch stuffed with feathers, was expensive to make. Uh, a good quality ball maker could maybe make six balls per day of, of a feathery. And uh, they, they, if they, when they are used in play, the a caddy might carry four or five golf balls in his pocket. So um, the cost of a feathery might range from in old money, two shillings and sixpence to four shillings a ball. Um, when the gutta percha ball, which was uh, this uh, uh, wonderful material which had been uh, discovered in uh, tree, tree gum in Malaysia, um, could simply be uh, uh, sort of warmed up and rolled into a ball shape. And it didn't require a great deal of skill at all to create a golf ball. And they, they sold almost immediately around that, that time for about one shilling. So it was a dramatic fall in the cost of the golf ball, which then, to the extent that Scots were familiar with the game, a greater number across the social classes could afford to play it. And then the other factor that you mentioned was the expansion of the railroad network, uh, which, as you were arguing before, didn't have as much of an impact on the on golf in England as it did in Scotland. But it did have an impact on golf in Scotland. What was that impact? Maybe you could uh, make that connection for me. Why was it that the railroad was such a boon for golf in, in Scotland? Well, as I said uh, in, in, um, initially, was most of the golf clubs at that time were on the east coast of Scotland. And of course, the, the largest part of the population were in, in the major cities, uh, not, not on the coast. So the, the railway network gave, um, gave people the opportunity to go and have seaside holidays. Uh, leisure time was increasing at this, this point in time. Affordability to, to, um, to take train, to take railway trips to the coast became a possibility. And they, the population was then seeing golf being played. So there was this uh, increasing awareness uh, at the same time as the game was becoming more affordable. So uh, it was the combination of these two factors which were quite significant in the take-up of golf in, in, in the mid-19th the mid century. And this was especially true of St. Andrews, right? More people were getting to St. Andrews and uh, you know, vacationing there 
and seeing the golf that was being played there on that terrific golf course, which was, you know, much different from other golf courses of that period, more people just got to see that specifically, right? St. Andrews golf. St. Andrews was at that time very much recognized as, as the best golf course there was and, um, and visitors, Scottish visitors, and I should add also English visitors were, come, were traveling up to the East Coast resorts. Uh, North Berwick was very popular, uh, Gullen, of course, and, and of course, St. Andrews. Um, the railway networks of England and Scotland were connected together around about that same point in time, around about 1850. So for the first time, English middle-class people could afford and and uh, the, the time frame for getting from London to Edinburgh shrank from the better part of a week on a stagecoach to 10 to 12 hours on a, on, on a train. Hmm. So th- this was a part of the process of of initially English people being exposed to this uh, crazy Scottish game called golf. Before we get to the English boom period, maybe you could just give me a general picture of Scottish golf during the Scottish boom period, specifically maybe focusing on elements that the English then changed or abandoned. What, what, what was, you know, unique about Scottish golf, especially as compared to the game that was played later in England? Well, I, I mean, the, the most crucial distinction was, was golf was played predominantly on Lynx land. Not exclusively. There were, there were places where uh, Brunsfield in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. which was basically just uh, Meadowland, and also um, at Perth on uh, the North Inch. Again, that was pasture. But predominantly, and of course, the best courses were on Lynx land around the coast, which was created as a combination consequence of geological factors and uh, weather weather patterns that created the dune land around particularly on the east side also on the west side uh, of of scotland but 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 golf itself took off more on the east side and mostly on the links land Hmm. so that that was a a, a very much a a distinction and that golf was seen to be an interesting game played on an undulating surface with uh, uh challenging weather conditions in terms of the wind so it was a, it was an interesting game to play because uh, there was many factors that were out with the golfers control but they had to use the skill to get the ball round and into that small hole so um scottish golf linksland um english golf much less so when when the boom began um already la- golf was moving inland closer to where people lived rather than at the coast so there wasn't this um as i mentioned there wasn't this strong linkage between the railways where um in scotland people would would travel to the coast to play golf much less so in england there was a preference to play golf closer to home maybe they got more hooked on it and uh, wanted to play it more often right yeah so uh, you know english golf when it came about was a lot more inland than scottish golf and and we can expand on that a little more later but you know just to drive this point home the scottish linksland was in many cases not what people now imagine to be a golf course. It was often shared among multiple different golf clubs and also multiple different activities, right? And it was and it was obviously very natural, even if the Linksland was quite well suited to the game. If a modern person looked at a at an old Scottish Links course, it might take a little while for them to recognize it as a golf course, right? Yes, it was pretty wild. I mean, it wasn't manicured in the way that we think of uh, 
the best golf courses to this day. Even the, the bunkers were essentially uh, what was cre created both by animals, scrapings, and golfers hitting shots out of rough areas in the ground. So the, the, it, was, it was more of a natural landscape. And as you say, um, it wasn't just for single usage. It wasn't just for golfers. It was common land and used for a whole range of, of different activities. Golf was just uh, one of the activities that would take place on the Lynx land. It wasn't exclusively for the golfers. All right, let's move to England. The first couple of golf clubs in England were pretty early, right? They didn't come about in the late 1800s. Blackheath was there very early on. And then there was a, a golf club near Manchester, I believe, that was there from the from the early 1800s. So could you tell me about these like early instances of English golf clubs? What were they like? As you as you uh, mentioned, uh, Blackheath, Royal Blackheath, as it, as it became known, um, was um, just to the um, southeast of, of the city of London on some rough heathland area, uh, which was uh, uh, very rudimentary again, and I guess would be the best way to describe it. And sort of um, quarries and uh, undulating territory. So there was some interest in it in terms of the playing the game there. And the, it was predominantly played by expatriate Scots who had settled in London. And uh, the club was formed in the 18th century, somewhere around about the 1760s, I think. And pretty much was expatriate Scots, perhaps with a few English friends, uh, taking, taking, getting involved in the game. And it started out as a five-hole golf course, um, subsequently extended to seven and then, and then later to, to more holes in the 19th century. And um, the second club came along uh, in 1818, uh, Manchester Golf Club. Very small, typically no more than 12 golfers who were members. Again, they had a small five-hole course on some rough heathland just on the periphery of the very rapidly growing industrial city of Manchester. And in fact, um, uh, subsequently, the, the pressures of growth of the city resulted in them leaving that land and, and moving elsewhere in the, by the time that we get to the, 18, the 1880s. But um, very modest. Set. And again, uh, expatriate Scots who were, had owned mills and other activities they were involved in, in merchants in Manchester. Uh, but it was basically two Scottish golf clubs. So when I think of the beginning of golf in England, it wasn't there. It was where golf was first played by Englishmen. And we have to wait till 1864 for that to happen when the club was formed at Westwood Hall and became Royal North Devon. And uh, I think over 75% of the initial members were English. And that to me was the sort of starting point. You had old Tom Morris laid out the course at Westwood Hall in 1864. It was 18 holes. Only the second golf course to have 18 holes uh, after uh, at St Andrews. And um, it was on Lynx land. So there was early character beginning to look like, well, maybe, maybe we're going to see a following on of what happened in Scotland um, being pursued in England. But as, as the story rolls through in time, um, that wasn't the case. It wasn't all about Lynx land and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily coastal either. Westward Ho is one of those historical moments that you just couldn't predict, right? Like a, a golf club like that formed by English people where it was. So for people who don't know where, where Royal North Devon is, 
what's its location like and why is it sort of surprising that golf like english golf might take root there well it's in the far southwest of 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 england um only cornwall is probably other away from from london in terms of accessibility the railways uh, could get people uh, and some of the Ro- some of the blackheath members would go down and play in the spring and autumn meetings once the club was established but it was all i mean as you say it's quite unexpected that it started there and it was started by um a family called the gossets and uh, the reverend gosset was uh, the founder of of the club um and again it was surely by chance that he had uh, two brothers-in-law uh, one was in based in st andrews um and the other uh, was in the engineers, uh, Royal Engineers, based at Presswick. So he had two brothers-in-law who who played golf, and when he went to visit them, he learned to play when he was up in Scotland, and found the game fascinating, and saw this as an opportunity where he was settled as the the local vicar down in in that corner of of Devon, and uh, laid out a very informal course until he got enough people interested in the game and uh, and then subsequently they formed this club north devon and old tom morris came down to to lay out the course was invited down to lay out the course so then from there you know how did english golf become popular well i, I as i mentioned earlier it, it was a very slow process i mean so uh, royal north devon formed in 1864 by 1869 there was only uh, a further four clubs had been formed uh, in england there was uh, london scottish on wimbledon common uh, there was um, royal liverpool at hoylake and uh, there was a very small club up in the north northeast of england northumberland called almouth and Cambridge University Golf Club was formed in 1869 as well. So that was it. There were seven golf clubs by 1869. If we rolled it forward another decade to 1879, then by then we only had 16 golf clubs. So in Scotland by that time, we were um, probably about 80 golf clubs in a country with a population of about one-sixth of, of the population of England. But then it was the 1880s that really saw the... By 1889, there were 100 golf clubs. So things were then beginning to take off. And of those 100 golf clubs, about 40% of them were at the coast and 60% of them were inland. Uh, most of them were on um, on private land rather than on public land as in Scotland. And almost all of them, the only exception was the was uh, London Scottish and Royal Wimbledon played, shared the course on Wimbledon Common, but all of the other clubs had their own golf courses. So it was... The beginnings of the takeoff of golf in England already were of a quite different character to what we'd seen in terms of development of golf in Scotland. What is your basic interpretation of why golf took off in the 1880s in England and not earlier and not later? Well, I think the sort of two factors, the two underlying factors is is the uh, growing awareness of, of golf as a game by English people. And that was initially, as I'd mentioned earlier, uh, as a result of English people in greater numbers uh, visiting Scotland for holidays in, in the summertime. And um, if you've seen the cover on my my book, which um, the Great English Golf Boom, it's from a, a, the cover is based on a cartoon that appeared in Punch magazine in 1885. And it has a 
large group of English golfers, men, women, children, and, and the elderly, marching with their golf clubs up to Scotland. And it's called the Golf Stream. And it was, uh, the cartoon was, uh, sort of signified the fact that, that golf now was seen as a, and was a visible, a visible game amongst English people. And at the same time as English people going north and, and seeing golf for the first time, a lot of Scots were emigrating south. They were emigrating all over the world, in fact, but, but there was nevertheless a, a large number of middle class Scots ended up moving south and they had already experienced the golf boom in Scotland. So many of the Scots going south brought their golf clubs with them. And if they settled in various parts of the country, then they were important in getting golf clubs off the ground, these initial clubs in the 1880s. But gradually there was a transition towards more English people getting involved in that process of beginning clubs. And by the late 1880s, the English English people, the new adopters of the game, were more important than the Scots who had who'd uh, who'd um who'd moved south. So there was a bit of a transition there in that sense. So the game in England basically took on a life of its own sometime in the 1880s and 1890s. This is kind of the first phase of the great English golf boom that you cover in your book. Now there was a second phase as well. So what happened between those two phases, the one in the 1880s and 1890s and then the one in the early 20th century leading up to the beginning of World War I in 1914. What separated those two phases? And then what was the cause and kind of character of that second part of the boom? Well, there, you're quite right in distinguishing these, these two distinct phases because the, the, as I've interpreted it in my research, they had very different underlying factors behind them. The The boom in the 80, late 1880s through into the the entire decade of the 1890s was pretty much driven by demand. The the enthusiasm for golf that was uh, amongst English people resulted in this huge upsurge in, in golf clubs being formed all across the country. I mean, to give an example, uh, in 1889 there were only two golf clubs in Yorkshire, the largest county in England. <laughs> but by 1893, just a few years later. Every county in England had a golf club, so golf spread pretty much everywhere, and it was it was it was characterised by this um, predominantly the clubs being formed. And I think the statistics are of the order of eighty five percent of the clubs formed were formed inland in in relatively rural settings. So it wasn't the case that the clubs were formed at the coast and people who lived in the cities took the train to play golf. That was an occasional thing they did in the summer holidays and at other occasions. But most of these golf clubs were being formed all over the country because people just had got the golf bug would be the best way to describe it in the 1890s. But as we got towards the end of the 1890s, it looked like it might be petering out. It was flattened. The number of golf clubs being formed was flattening out. And by around about the turn of the century, around about 1900, there was, although there, it wasn't in decline, there was only a, a very modest number of clubs being formed each year compared to what we'd seen in the in the mid-1890s. I mean, if we take 1893, 1894 as an example, a new golf club was being formed every four days in <laughs> England during that, that those two years. That was the, the real peak of the boom. By around about 1900, we were looking more like um, a couple of golf clubs every month was being formed. Mm. 
Um, right about that time of the century, there there was also an important event. Was that the uh, there was a war, the Boer War, uh, being fought in in South Africa, and uh, a large number of young men went left the country uh, to to fight in that war. Um, so I looked at that in some detail to see whether that might have been a contributory factor to the decline or the the slower growth rate in golf, but it didn't seem to be. Golf was still being played all around the country even though there was a war on at the same time, mm-hmm. albeit a very distant war. Yeah, and this was the war that Alistair McKenzie served in, right? And 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 developed his ideas of, of camouflage. So little historical trivia there. Um, so the Boer War was not a contributing factor. What did you find to be contributing factors to this? Um, well, that's the downturn. But maybe more interesting is the contributing factors to the upsurge. I think that you know what you concluded in your book, just to give people a basic idea, is that the downturn around the turn of the century and in interest in golf was kind of a natural happening, right? The 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 first kind of enthusiasm for golf, you know, what was was just tapering off a little bit, right? It couldn't continue at the torrid pace that it went in the 1890s. But to me, the really interesting stuff is why it was that it that it upsurged again, because that that's almost like that's the super unexpected thing that happened. It would be expected that interest would decline a little bit after, you know, a number of years in golf. But then all of a sudden in the early years of the 20th century, it spiked back up again. Why was that? Indeed. And uh, again, maybe to characterize the distinction, I, I, I've, the, the, the boom in the 1890s was very much demand driven, mm-hmm. but it was factors on the supply side that were important to the renewed boom that took place in the Edwardian period from around 1900 through till the First World War. There were three distinct supply-side factors and one other factor which we can also touch upon. So the three supply-side factors were the invention of the Haskell ball, which um, Colonel Haskell, uh, Coburn Haskell was involved, created in around about 1898, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that eventually made its way into England around about 1902, when in the amateur championship and the open championship of that year, the both winners played with the Haskell ball. So that was a, that was a start. The, the second key feature was the dramatic change in uh, the style of golf courses that were beginning to, the the transition away from the rather basic rudimentary courses with uh, with uh, bunkers just stretched right across the fairways towards a more strategic game. Um, and there were some of the key architects and we were now talking about the term golf architects for the first time willie park jr harry colt subsequently alistair mckenzie and herbert fowler some of the key figures who were involved in taking golf in a new direction in terms of how it was played and the third factor on the supply side was the improvement in the quality of the courses the greenkeeping side the uh, idea the concept of agronomy was beginning to appear rather than just um, predominantly in the 1890s. These were greenkeepers who came down from Scotland who might have known something about how to prepare a course on lynx land, but it was completely a new challenge to develop and prepare golf courses to that standard on inland pasture. And um, it took time and technology and um, science to enable us to get to the stage where we could lay out courses that were attractive and appealing to golfers to play. And I think that was the that was underlying it, these factors was 
golf was a difficult game in the 1890s. We were playing with a gutta percha ball on very basic courses, on muddy parkland or pasture, and it was a difficult game. But the three, these three inventions made, ga- made golf a more interesting and more fun game to play. The Haskell ball meant that they could get the ball up in the air more easily and could hit it further, so that was always always fun, as we know to this day. <laughs> the uh, strategic design meant that we no longer had golf courses that were uh, purely meant to be penal if you hit a bad shot. Uh, there were other challenges, but not not the uh, the challenge that most golf most golf professionals thought had to be achieved was to get the ball in the air, um, and hence bunkers were laid across the middle of fairways. Uh, so there was a, it was a new new more thoughtful game that was emerging, and again and and thirdly the quality of the courses being improved, it was a more enjoyable experience to walk around a golf course rather than plow around a muddy field. Two of those factors I really want to pick up on here are strategic golf design and the advances in agronomy that you're talking about, because those are two such fascinating factors in the first decade of the 20th century, you know, really our modern ideas of strategic golf design and agronomy emerged in that decade. And I think part of what had to be a big factor was just that English golf courses, as as you've mentioned a couple of times, were primarily inland. They were not on lynx land anymore. They weren't on this kind of perfectly suited land. And so there needed to be some human intervention to adapt this land to the game. And what this spurred was innovation in agronomy and architecture. Do you think that that theory holds water? Uh, Did these things come about really because they started, golfers started working with ill-suited pieces of land and they had to figure out how to work with this stuff. Yes, but it it always needs a leader, always needs key figures to be able to make that, um, to to take things forward in an innovative sense, to to break new ground, to take anything, a new business, a new sport, a sport in a different direction. And um, I've highlighted Willie Park Jr. as, as one of the key figures. Because uh, in eight, in 1901, three of his he opened three golf courses in that year: Sunningdale, the old course as we think of it nowadays, um, Huntercombe, and and Hollandwell. Uh, and these, particularly the first two, these these were the first move in the direction of strategic design and golf courses that looked and played more like links courses looked the the best links courses looked around the country and willie park jr was of course a professional by background a two-time open champion who had uh came from musselburgh by background yeah the the great park family he his he was a spectacular golfing family yes and uh, and mungo park um a good friend of ours here in in england a golf historian is going to bring out a, a fantastic book next year hopefully on uh on the Park families and the other Musselburgh families. So that I'm sure that's someone you might want to talk to in the year ahead. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Fried Eggs new membership. It's called Club TFE, and it launches on January 2nd. So that's coming up. You can sign up at thefriedegg.com slash membership. All right, so here's what you get with a Fried Egg Club TFE membership. You get a weekly course profile with an official egg rating, 
And if you want to know what egg rating means, go to thefriedegg.com and check out Andy Johnson's piece called How the Fried Egg Rates Golf Courses. And he goes into some depth there about how we're rating golf courses. If you'd also like to see what a course profile looks like, we have a new one up on Sandhills Golf Club. And I'm biased, but I think it's it's really fantastic. So that's the kind of content that you get as a Club TFE member. Club TFE is also going to come with the Club TFE blog. It's going to come with a monthly members-only video. You'll get a monthly virtual hangout with Fried Egg staff. So who knows what's going to happen during those. You'll get an annual Club TFE gift. You'll get early access to Fried Egg events. And finally, 10% off the Fried Egg Pro Shop. So Club TFE is a pretty extensive offering. It's $120 per year. And it's basically a way for us to get closer to our readers and listeners, build some community, and really provide the content that we think we do best, that we're most passionate about, and that we think our most avid readers and listeners really want. So that's Club TFE. Again, thefriedegg.com slash membership. Check it out. Hope to see you there. Let's go back to the episode. Willie Park Jr. is someone you've identified as extremely important in the in the history of architecture because of these three courses that came out in 1901, Hollandwell, Huntercombe, and Sunningdale. What made these courses different from what came before? The strategic design of the courses. And, and Willie Park Jr. had written a book uh, on golf in 1896. He was the first professional to actually put his ideas in print. And it was a very popular and very successful book um, and although they weren't they weren't fully formed when he wrote the book there was already some ideas emerging that bunkers ne- shouldn't necessarily be stretched straight across the fairway to stop people from hitting uh, be, being successful from hitting a, a shot that's topped there was that he was starting to consider that bunkers should be to the sides of fairways f- to catch slices and pools and also the greens, not just to be simple squares and very flat, but to have undulations and to be much larger. The The fact that he was a very good putter was probably one of the reasons why he wanted the challenge of putting to be an impo- a more important part of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but it was with these sort of design features that he was he was formulating at that time that he he had the opportunity then to implement. First at Sunningdale, where they provided them with sufficient funds to clear a large area of heathland uh, to the west of London, Cobham Common. And uh, he used a large team of, of men and, and horses and uh, machinery to do that. And uh, he cleared away the, the heather and the, and the gorse to create, essentially to carve a golf course out of the heathland that existed there. But also importantly, he, he seeded the ground with uh, bents and fescues, the grasses that typically were associated with the lynx land. And he also put in watering to ensure that the greens could be managed and, and cut and prepared to a standard that would have been acceptable at those times. So Sunningdale was very much a start point, um, followed on very quickly by uh, Huntercombe, which um, rare amongst uh, golf professionals that day, w- Willie Park was actually making enough money that he could afford to, with some investors in supporting him, he could afford to actually acquire the land and develop the course at Huntercombe himself. So um, he he did that and very rapidly laid out, laid out a very challenging golf course there, there, which was very much his own, 
Unfortunately, a few years down the road, for other factors, it was less successful, and in the end, he he pretty much lost the money that he had uh, had put into it. But Hollingwell was was the third of the three, uh, perhaps had less resources initially to develop that one, but nevertheless, it was on a very interesting piece of land, and his ideas were beginning to take shape there also. I just want to underline how different the architecture was at these courses, how different the process that went into making these courses was by maybe comparing it to what architects or designers, they wouldn't have called themselves architects, I don't think, in the 1890s, what English designers were doing on Parkland inland courses before the 20th century. So could you give me a picture of what the methods were, what the prevailing methods were to lay out courses on inland properties before Willie Park put out these three impressive projects? Well, it's remarkably simple because they did very little. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't much added to what was there. So um, again, coming back, just a bit of statistical uh, fact, uh, material here. Around about 80% of these of these golf courses that were being developed at that time before um, before 1900 were nine hole courses. And they tended to be on a small piece of parkland on the periphery of whichever town uh, near to where the golfers lived. Not usually more than 35 acres of land for nine holes. So the, uh, the, the, the first steps that the, uh, that the um, founders took was to try and get us either a local pro uh, of a golf club nearby or bring a Scotsman down to give them some guidance on how they could lay out nine holes on this modest piece of land. Um, essentially, it was the, the professional or the, the, uh, even the committee on some occasion would just peg out where they saw an appropriate place to put a tee and, and where to put a green. And that job could be done in half a day. The tools of the trade were no more than a heavy roller and a lawnmower to cut the grass and to flatten the area where the tees and the greens would be. And of course, sheep and sometimes less appealingly, cattle were used to keep the um, the fairways sort of sufficiently short for the golfers to play on. But th these were muddy conditions. I mean, through the winter, it would be it would be awful conditions. You didn't have the firm turf of the of the links land, so they had to put up with the the relatively poor quality golf courses, and and that's all there was in the eighteen nineties in terms of inland golf. It was it it was of that character. And this wasn't unique to English golf. This method of building golf courses. This is essentially what Scottish golf designers were doing as well what old Tom Morris would do when he showed up at a piece of Lynx land. But it just happened to be the case that Scottish courses were built on better land for golf. And so these methods of kind of natural golf design worked better, got better results. And of course you had, you had the natural dune land and, and, and the possibility of, of natural bunkers, mm -hmm. uh, which became a feature of golf uh, as a result of it starting on, on, on the dune land. Whereas in, uh, in inland, you, you know, uh, some artificial bunkers may have been created, but they weren't a major feature of these simple nine-hole courses. You read when you read the um, the golfing annual and and some of the other uh, annuals of that time, which gave brief descriptions of these golf courses. The hazards were commonly described as hedges, ditches, and streams. <laughs> 
rather than, and occasionally there's a mention of an artificial bunker. So they just, uh, these um, working class professionals who were helping to get these golf courses off the ground were just making use of whatever was the natural landscape and the natural habitat to create some sort of challenge for the golfers, but not necessarily one that mirrored the challenge of playing on Lynxland. There are relatively few landscapes in the world that have natural sand bunkers, <laughs> right? And so, uh, you know, like Blackheath, for instance, I think you mentioned in your book, the hazards there were early on were maybe gravel pits. Am I right about that? Gravel pits, yeah. Okay. Neither of those two early courses, uh, Manchester and Blackheath, had any bunkers at all, you know, as, yeah. as, we, as we would call them today. So these courses in the 1890s were, were built within weeks and they were up and running within no more than a month. Uh, uh, so because, again, the demand was, was so great to get golf courses going. But then Willie Park Jr. actually had two years to put together Sunningdale. Um, he did, he did Huntercombe a bit quicker than that. But then when some of the other great architects of that era were coming along, like Fowler, he took two years to do Walton Heath. This was on a completely different scale, both financially and the amount of time and investment that went into creating the the, more, the new strategic design courses. Yeah. And, and so the effort, the time and the money that went into construction, the, the construction of courses like Sunningdale and later Walton Heath and then, you know, some courses in, in America not too long later, like National Golf Links and, and Pine Valley – the scale of those projects was so much bigger than what you saw in the 1880s and 90s that it's almost like it was a completely different thing, like a golf course had become something totally different. And so I guess so my, my question is what I've never known is what enabled Willie Park Jr., for instance, to spend so much money and so much time on Sunningdale did the model of financing a club change in some essential way around that time? What were the factors that allowed him to spend so much time, so much money, so much labor on creating an inland golf course? Because this had like never been done before. This was new. Well, it, it, an affluent membership certainly helped. And yes. uh, each, <laughs> right. of, each, of, each of the initial members put up £100 uh, as their contribution to uh, the formation of Sunningdale. Mm. So that was a, a huge amount of money in comparison to the very modest sums that were spent and could be afforded in these small um, market town golf courses scattered all across England, where golf clubs were basically started perhaps with no more than 100 to 200 pounds in entirety. Whereas in, in um, um, at Sunningdale, they spent... A bit less on the golf course. I think it was about four or five thousand pounds they spent on the golf course, while at the same time they spent about seven thousand pounds on building the clubhouse. So th this was for affluent gentlemen who wished to play golf, and money was wasn't uh, a, a limiting a limiting factor in what they could do. But it was nevertheless quite inspirational to get Willie Park Jr. to come and do it. I mean, he'd only was only beginning to make his name as a golf course architect at that time. He'd developed a, a small number of other courses in England, but but not many. So it was quite a, it was quite a step to to get him involved. So the development of golf course design was was financed by wealthy people in the end, I, I, I suppose. The strategic the courses that we might think of as the the big name courses, the the ones that began to take off at that time, were were clubs at the affluent end. 
it still meant even though there were clubs f- being formed in the Edwardian period, were were still more of the the the, the simple the simpler character. But over time, again, again, it, it, this is time is an important factor, and knowledge and and the increasing transfer of information around the country. Gradually, some these golf courses, even at the lower end of the of the scale, began to consider, in a in a more rudimentary way, having a, a layout which had a more strategic intent rather than just the penal form that was being that had been put in place in the in the eighteen nineties. Was this the start of golf becoming less and less affordable? Um, I wouldn't say so, um, because the number of golfers kept growing dramatically. So we we could say that golf was becoming more expensive, and, and there's evidence of that because I looked carefully at what uh, membership costs of different golf clubs were across the country, and they they were growing over time. But the income of of um, the middle classes, in particular. Was also growing very rapidly, so um, you had the situation where, in about 1860, I think there was something of the order of 400,000 people in Great Britain uh, paying taxes, which meant earning over 150 pounds a year, roughly. Um, by 1911, 1.2 million people were in that same category. So there was a the middle classes were were a growing percentage of the population and uh, and becoming better off. So um, that was one factor. The other thing was there was quite a widespread of costs of joining clubs. The the Sunningdales and the Huntercombs and the Walton Heaths and about 50 or so others were very much the elite clubs where you might have to spend um, the term uh, they used to use guineas rather than pounds, uh, which is just one pound and one shilling. Um, but you might have to spend 10 pounds uh, to join and another £10 per annum as your annual subscription. But there were many clubs across the country where you didn't have to pay a joining fee and it might only cost you one guinea to play golf. So there was quite a quite a spread. It wasn't simply that um, it wasn't simply the case that uh, golf, golf for everyone was 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 becoming more expensive. So you wouldn't endorse the kind of simplistic idea that the English game was a game for rich men Whereas the Scottish game was more for the the working and and middle classes and and more for humble people, it was more complicated than that. Is what I'm hearing. I the picture is is I, I, again uh, the perception has been very much a black and white picture that everybody who could play golf who was interested in playing golf could play golf in Scotland, very egalitarian. Whereas in England it was seen as a rich man and and maybe perhaps emphasis on on the the male. Uh, it was a, a rich man's game, but when you look at the when you actually look at the clubs that were formed during that period, and you see that there was a very wide uh, disparity in the uh, cost of playing between the very modest clubs in the rural settings and the number of golfers who were taking up the game, it is it, just it isn't simply possible that it was purely a rich man's game, and and because. Um, those, those number of clubs just couldn't possibly have taken off if it was limited to the upper middle classes. And also, in addition to that, women took took up the game in big numbers in England in this period, more so than in Scotland to some degree. It was uh, it became uh, when the la- the ladies golfing union was formed in eighteen ninety three. That was a, a starting point that um, 
triggered interest amongst women across the country in playing the game. And the, uh, the number of women playing golf grew dramatically through, particularly in the Edwardian period, to the extent that by 1914, my estimates that I've made in my book, about one in every four of the golfers in England at that time was a woman. So, uh, and, and the participation and membership of women in golf clubs was an important feature. Almost all golf clubs in England were mixed. And this is quite surprising because, again, typically they're viewed as being sort of male, male domains. Albeit women didn't have the same full rights of uh, voting at AGMs and they had their own uh, rooms to have tea rather than shared rooms with, with, with the men in the club. But nevertheless, there was many women who took up the game and many young women as well. Young, young unmarried women were quite a significant, significant proportion of the, of the women who took up the game. So the, there's a lot of interesting social strands to this, this story of how golf boomed in England. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like today where there's a maybe a simple perception of golf as a rich man's game. But once you look at the golf that's played in any particular region, there tends to be more diversity in the way that the game is played than people think. And that's maybe a factor of us just kind of focusing on the most famous clubs, the most famous courses, which often are the best finance courses like Sunningdale, <laughs> you know, for instance. Sunningdale doesn't define this period that you wrote about. It's part of it, but it's not the entire picture. Exactly so. And, and, and there is a bit of a reporting bias here. I mean, the, the newspapers were full of, uh, as, as they became more illustrated uh, newspapers, they were tended to focus on the, the great clubs, uh, where the great championships were being played. And so there's this perception that people have of seeing these grand clubhouses and wonderful golf courses, whereas probably still 75, 80% of them were much more modest, uh, much less cost, and uh, and still golf was being participated in by a, a wider cross-section of people around the country, both men and women. So if you were to identify a few really important lingering effects, long-term effects that the great English golf boom had, what would you focus on? Well, the, 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 the first thing is, is the number of golf clubs that have survived. Uh, I mean, again, just to, just to put the number, numbers in context. So, uh, 1864 to 1889, 100 golf clubs were formed in England. 1890 to 1914, 1200 golf clubs were formed in England. That's that in that period, that was on average, nearly one new golf club was formed every week and very few of them failed. Um, by 1914, less than 150 of those golf clubs that have been formed since 1864 failed. So, and then we look to where we are today, and inevitably clubs were lost, particularly during the two world wars, uh, where the land was given up for uh, agriculture or, or just golf courses went um, into abeyance. Um, but today, um, there are 780 clubs in England who can put their foundation date as before the First World War. And that makes up uh, about 45% of all the clubs that exist in England today. So they're tremendously resilient organizations. Um, and they're, they're still with us. Um, and perhaps that's one of the great appeal of, of our game of golf is that you can walk in the footsteps of your forefathers on the same land and play golf in broadly the same conditions that they played when they were 
playing it two, three generations before. Hmm. Another theory that I was was sort of bouncing around my head as I was re- reading your book is that the character that the game took on in England during this boom really had a big influence on the character of the game many other places that it expanded to later, Australia, the United States, and elsewhere, where there was an emphasis on nine and 18 hole courses. If you look at early Scottish courses, you know, they have five holes, they have seven holes, they have, uh, you know, 14 holes. Whereas in England, it was more the trend to make a nine hole course with the intention of maybe adding another nine later on. It became more regimented. The way courses began to be built inland on parkland in England where architecture was done on them, where agronomic science was applied to them. All of these things are things that happened elsewhere as golf moved to other places in the world. So is it an exaggeration to say that the great English golf boom was kind of a foundational moment for golf, maybe even as much as the Scottish invention of the game was? Because the character of the game in England became so much the character of the game everywhere else afterwards. Yes, I, I think that's a very good point you make, Garrett, because um, you know, the the many most of the clubs initially started off with nine holes and that's because most of the golfers were, were absolute beginners and so it's quite a risky uh, proposition to get a club off the ground. You're never quite sure whether people are going to stick with it. But remarkably golf seems to have hooked even the beginners playing perhaps on these rather basic courses. So um, when the opportunity arose, and it didn't happen for every club, um, there was the expansion from 9 to 18 holes. And another feature of English golf, which perhaps distinguished it from Scottish, the early days of Scottish golf, which, which was pre- predominantly played in a match play format, um, handicaps were really just a negotiation with regards to how, how much money would be bet on the game. Whereas in England, we moved towards stroke play competitions. There yes. was much more interest in what score you could obtain at the end of a round. This was not part of the, the Scottish tradition at all. So again, another feature which you might add into your uh, combination of inland golf, uh, courses being designed as distinct from just what you get with the natural land um, and the way in which golf was being played. All of those factors, I think, say, you know, say that English golf was a very important part of that, that step and that process towards the modern golf we play in contemporary times. Well, Michael, your book is called The Great English Golf Boom. I think it's a really important contribution to historical scholarship about golf. So uh, can you tell people how they could get a copy of the book uh, for themselves, maybe for the holidays? Uh, most certainly. Um I, I self-published the book, so if you want to get a copy, you have to contact me. I didn't go through a, a, a major publisher. And and the, the, the simplest way to do that is to contact me um, either on, on Twitter, where I'm at uh, Golf History Mike is, is my, uh, is my uh, title there, or probably much easier and more directly by email, and my email address is Mike dot morrison 57 at outlook.com and the book costs 25 pounds if you were to purchase it here in england plus postage unfortunately the postage is somewhat somewhat more expensive to 
get it across the Atlantic. So it's probably closer to uh, £56 to, uh, for, for the book to be, um, to be sold uh, uh, to Americans and uh, North Americans. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Matt Rusius. As a reminder, you can sign up for our new membership, Club TFE, at thefriedegg.com slash membership. So we're going to take a little break for the holidays here. We should be back for, I think, one episode before the new year. In the meantime, happy holidays to you. Hope you're doing well. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.